We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, keeping with my practice from last week and many other weeks, frankly, I'm drawing from the Episcopal Church's lectionary for gospel readings to tether my lessons. And this is the one they are reading this week. I suppose a not unfamiliar take on this passage in many Christian denominations might be something like, Jesus came to Galilee and was keen to save all these lousy sinners from hell. Repent of your sins, he told them. Feel bad and berate yourself for all the evil you've done because the world is about to come to an end and you want to be sure you make it into the kingdom of heaven. Intellectually assent to the good news that I have come to save you and oh, Simon and Andrew, come after me, worship me, and then you can pull people into nets, into my church, and keep them safe and sound for my glory. Amen. Yeah, that won't be the take we're unpacking here. When most of us picture a fisherman from Jesus' days, we probably envision a working-class man with little education. Simple, in fact. This is often how the early disciples are portrayed. Simple, but strong and rough around the edges. Working a hard job requiring much in the way of physical stamina and organizational skills, but little in the way of intellect or wisdom. The fact is, fishing was big-time work in Jesus' time and place. King Herod's empire had invested heavily into the industry, and it was thriving. The fishermen were responsible for much more than fishing. It was likely that the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee would have been fluent in at least Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, as the merchants buying the fish came from all over. The fishermen would have also needed to be proficient in mathematics, as they would have had to know how many of each fish they had caught and what kind of market value it should bring. They had to mend nets and maintain boats, work through the night, and sacrifice much for their trade. It is also probable that the average fisherman would have had a decent income in comparison to many other trades. And the owners of boats ran small enterprises that would have made even more. Pardon me, I'm just trying to get my mic. Is that okay, camera? Okay, great. If they ran a small enterprise, they probably would have made even more than the average fisherman. Simon and Andrew were brothers who owned their boat and had a house in the city of Capernaum, no small feat in a land where there were very few situated in the wealth gap between the lords and their estates and the vast majority of poor people who made the whole society go. They were likely pretty well-skilled to have been able to build and maintain such a business, pretty comfortable in their standard of living compared to most others in their city. In other words, they weren't uneducated, and they had a lot at stake in their lives. So when we take all this into account, it's really remarkable, if not stunning, to read of how easily these two hard-working, dedicated, intelligent fishermen laid down their nets, meaning their business, their livelihoods, their home, their standing, 
their families, everything they had, in order to respond to a stranger's call to follow him and do a thing that, on the face of it, makes zero sense. Fish for people. What could possibly have drawn Simon and Andrew to a wandering homeless wisdom teacher whom they had never met before, so drawn that they would leave everything behind? Well, I know that for me, and probably for you too, the only thing that would be so compelling as to leave everything behind would be something I deeply, deeply wanted more than anything I already had. The desire would have to be so deep it would be something beyond rational thought, beyond logic, beyond words. Jesus must have had what they wanted, even if they didn't know precisely what that was. Now, I speak a lot about Jesus up here. I'm a real fan of the guy. And it's not just because, in my opinion, he's the greatest wisdom teacher to have ever walked the planet. It's mostly because in order to be the greatest wisdom teacher to have ever walked the planet, there must have been something about his very being and presence that spoke of profound mystery and made people yearn more than anything else for what they found in him. Thousands of people left behind reason and sense and followed him. And then after he died, countless more encountered enough of whatever it was Jesus had awakened in his followers that they also left everything behind. For hundreds of years in the face of relentless persecution and death, people were drawn to these followers and became followers themselves, passing down a spiritual way of being that has made it through to us all these many hundreds of years later. Jesus' first followers didn't just fall out of the sky, they experienced something deeply profound in him, their deepest desire, and they followed him, eventually being transformed by that experience. Now, Jesus may have emanated this divine love to a degree yet to be found in anyone else, but he's far from the only one who has inhabited it. In last week's talk, I spoke about Maria's encounter of such a person with the Hindu holy man in India. Doug has spoken of the nun in his early ministry who led him to learn contemplative practices. I met Rosa Parks once, a story for another time, but indeed, a woman of quiet strength and serene countenance. Perhaps you've had the experience of encountering someone like this, someone who possesses an almost otherworldly peacefulness, a contentedness, a rooted and grounded calm, a happy connection to the divine that shines forth from their souls. Such people are very compelling. They have what we want, what we all deeply yearn for, which is a life illuminated by the inner light and driven by our deepest, truest selves. This deep yearning has, in one way or another, brought each one of us here. We've been talking a lot lately about the future of Common Thread, about funding for it, and also about inviting others to experience it. And I'm not going to say there isn't some degree of practical consideration involved with this invitation proposition, but that's really a very small part of it. The biggest thing is the desire to share what we have with whoever is at least a little aware of how much they want to have it. If we are here, we belong, and we know we belong. We are here because at one point, we've experienced the warmth of genuine invitation and a degree of transformation, and we know that there are many, many others out there who would thrive in a place like this, who would contribute to the continued growth of our community if only they knew we existed. But asking people to come to church is pretty fraught. 
We've probably all at one time been on the receiving end of such an, such an evangelizing invitation to another church, and in most cases, we've probably been like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And it's because we sense what our well-intentioned friends and their pastors are offering is their version of being fishers of people, trying to gather us into the nets of their churches. And we know what goes on in many of those churches, calls to repentance because we are sinners, altar calls, threats of hell and fear-based preaching, or maybe even exclusion from something like communion because we aren't one of them. It might be dressed up in rock music and ministers and jeans, but in the end, they are trying to save our souls. So what makes us any different? A lot of things, actually. We aren't about saving souls in that sense. And folks can read all about us. We have a gorgeous website that's super clear about who we are and what we don't believe. We have a slick brochure now that highlights the main points of the site. We're turning up in Google searches. We have a solid social media presence, a YouTube channel. All our Sunday lessons are available in a podcast. We tout a book written by our founding minister about rethinking our story which is also neatly summed up in a newly released video series. And we've started a project to help everyone here have access to the right kind of language to use in speaking about our community to folks who haven't joined us yet. All this content is pretty masterful, I'd say, and it has certainly gotten people to our campus and into our chapel, and no doubt will continue to do so. And content is content. In and of itself, it is not the divine light. It only points to it. And it's the divine light, the recognition of it, the deep desire to actualize it in oneself that draws deep seekers in. It wasn't Jesus' teachings or healings or miracles that compelled Simon and Andrew to follow him. He hadn't even started doing any of those things when he found them. It was his being. It was his captivating love. They wanted what he had, knew in some mystical way that they also had what he had. Deep calls to deep, as the psalmist puts it. Our yearning for God is God's yearning for us, says 14th century mystic Meister Eckhart. These early followers had a sense it was in them, but they hadn't quite uncovered it yet. And still, what drew them to the inner light they saw in Jesus was the inner light in them. When Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of people, he wasn't talking about the hook or the net. He was talking about the bait the attraction, the light that draws people to come in the first place, that they might know that light in themselves. And if you're going to be a fisher of people, you've got to be able to emanate at least a little of that light from within yourself. So what Jesus says before all the fishing talk in this passage is what we need to pay attention to first. They are, in fact, the very first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is something about which Jesus spoke frequently, but not as a distant realm somewhere else, a place to go after we die, but as a presence within us, an interconnected energy holding us. This energy is always at hand, right here, all around us and within us, if only we could awaken to it, if only we could see. Which is why it is such a shame that the next word he says, repent, is so often poorly translated. The original text doesn't mean feel ashamed and guilty, rend your garments, do penance. It's nothing like that. I mean, think about it. Would a preacher who is always telling people not to be afraid start off his entire ministry with such a scary proclamation? No. 
what we've translated as repent is a more nuanced word in Greek called metanoia, meaning in various translations, turn around, reorient yourself, or in the Greek, change your mind, or even go beyond it. Basically, a call to change our cramped and fearful small minds, go beyond our critical and resentful false selves, and enter into the larger mind, into the deep of who we really are, mind, body, and heart, animated by divine breath. Going there necessitates an entirely different way of seeing, not with these small eyes and our small intellects, and not with judgment and self-recrimination, but with curiosity, with noticing, with an observing self, with love for oneself and our human condition, and with what the Eastern Church has referred to as the eye of the heart, a place where we can experience the loving presence of God in our innermost being. It is from this place that we gently learn how to see what weighs us down, to see what our attachments are, to let go of the things that bind us, where we are able to begin to truly see the reality of oneness, that there is no separation between God and humans, between humans and other humans, or between humans, God, and creation. Richard Rohr calls this unitive or non-dual consciousness. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. The church, in its better moments, has called it salvation. We might call it transformation. And that's what we're about in this community, transformation. If you've been here for any length of time, you know the tools or technologies of transformation, because we offer a boatload of them. Our self-awareness practice is an excellent tool for transformation. When we come to understand the stories we tell ourselves and see with new eyes, the things under the things that drive our behavior, so we can begin to let them go. In our Enneagram work, we come to understand the motives of our types and our efforts to grow beyond the reactive behaviors that emerge from them, seeing our reactions with new eyes and seeing the possibilities for new ways of being. Practices such as the welcoming prayer, mindfulness meditation, and even just following our breath are designed to help us be still, rest in God, listen, trust, open up, let go, and see from a very different place. There are so many possibilities to find what practices resonate with us and work in the context of our lives. And whatever we choose, eventually, spiritual practice begins to change us, even to transform us. And how do we know when we are experiencing transformation? Well, with the rarest of exceptions, we notice it subtly, gently, and it might even catch us by surprise. Over time, we begin to notice that we become less defensive when we're wrongly accused, less ego-driven when we don't get the credit we deserve on a project. We find we can be present to what is without resistance. We discover, even in the midst of turmoil, that we are maintaining our atmosphere and standing on solid ground from which to love with open hearts, in which to suffer from rooted strength, not at all yanked and jerked by the things that happen to us and around us. We realize we aren't reactively angry with someone who disagrees with us, knowing that their opinions define them no more than our opinions define us. We can truly love even our enemies and those who persecute us. We feel compassion for them. We see through all the false self-defensive behaviors, and we see through to the divine light in them, and we know we are one with them. 
And although the likes of Jesus or Doug's nun or Maria's holy man might make the inner light very obvious because of years of consistent practice, for all of them, it started with a first step, a deep breath, a small, doable practice, a non-judgmental noticing of a small self-reaction followed by a pause before reacting the next time, a letting go of an unhelpful opinion, a walk in the woods while letting thoughts go. The very first step we take towards transformation begins to let that light emanate from us. Once we have begun to go down this path, then, without even words, but just by our very being and presence, by the love we manifest, we too can be fishers of people, demonstrating to those seeking genuine transformation that we walk the talk and live what we preach, and they will be drawn to that authenticity. These people probably won't leave everything behind to follow us, and I don't think we'd want them to but they just might feel compelled to come and see what's behind this invitation of being drawn into the depths of their own being from others who are doing that work themselves. And when we do the work, who knows what we might see in them, what we might see in everyone, what revelations of love might arise in us. Trappist monk Thomas Merton, a man who spent his life doing this work of contemplative practice and spiritual transformation, discovered this during a mystical experience in 1958 in Louisville, Kentucky, at the corner of Walt Fourth and Walnut. He says, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes, if only they could all see themselves as they really are, and if only we could see each other that way all the time. And that, my friends, is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus actually said in the beginning of Mark's gospel is something possibly more like this. We are all one. Wake up. Go beyond your mind, see this reality with the eye of your heart, and trust in the divine life and love within you. And when you can begin to do this, you can draw others in too. Transformation is a lifelong journey, and it is not a straight line. We move forward, we can fall back. Sometimes the light shines brighter, and other times not so much. We are utterly beloved, no matter where we are on the journey. But if we want transformation, we have to keep consciously and intentionally doing the work, never thinking we've arrived, because we never will. But once that inner light, that divine love is evident in our being, even just a little, it is incredibly compelling. Together with that inner light evident in our love for one another, we can continue to cultivate this space of refuge and peace, hope and love, where we earnestly do the work of transformation that beckons to those who are seeking. 
we can draw them in and eventually also draw the same light from them. And we do this so that we can, just by living our lives from this increasingly grounded place, especially in these divisive and polarized times, especially in this election year, with all the fear and foreboding around us, we can be true healers and repairers of our world, bringing to all those who are sad and hopeless, confused and fed up, angry and fearful, duplicitous and traitorous, lonely and grieving, oppressed and oppressing, ashamed and worn out, we can bring to all who are weary and in need of rest the light and love of God in whom we live and move and have our being if only we can see. So it's, it's okay. So it's, uh, it's one thing to get up here and talk about transformation, especially since I used a whole bunch of words to say that words aren't at all what get us there. But contemplative prayer can get us there. So I'm going to post the prayer we did before the Taizé chant today, the Be Still Meditation, in the app this afternoon. And if you're new to contemplative prayer and want to find an accessible way to beginning it, I encourage you to see if you can find just five minutes each day this week to sink into this prayer with the structure of the guided meditation or just on your own. Consistency is what makes any practice effective, even if it's only for a few minutes a day. And if you're an old hat with meditation, think about joining us. I plan to do it each morning and evening myself, and I also believe, an opinion sure, but a pretty well-informed one, that when we do this together, it's so much more powerful than any one of us doing it alone, because we are one. So. I invite you all to join me in this simple practice this week, and let's just see how it goes. So we are going to do what are you sensing, feeling, and thinking in a few minutes here in the room. But first, friends on the live stream, I'd like to invite you to join in what are you thinking online, uh, where I hope you'll also check in about what you are sensing and feeling, because as we just discussed, our thoughts alone will not get us where we want to go. My friend Chris is facilitating today along with a group of wonderful folks who are always eager to welcome, welcome new people into the conversation. So if you're new, we warmly invite you to consider joining in to connect and share with some of the best folks I know. The link is in the comments in YouTube or it's on the website and you'll need a code to get in and that code is 1417. So here in the room, everyone, I invite you to put your hand, one hand on your heart and let's remember as we send our friends off here on the live stream that the divine indwells each one of us that the divine light is in us, which means the fruit of the spirit, all the fruits, spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, they are in us waiting to be shared. So let's extend our other hand toward our city and beyond, toward the people with whom we live and work and go to school, toward everyone we see, those who are joyful and those who are suffering, as we commit this week to share the love of the divine within, to be healers and repairers of our world, and fishers of people. Amen. Friends on the live stream, you are dismissed. And friends in the room, I would like us all to just take one deep breath in and out, get settled in our bodies before we share what's on our hearts and our minds this morning. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org, the donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.